April the 15th. How about that, huh? Taxes are due? No, not really till Tuesday, right? April 15th, 2018, lecture discussion number 19 on the book of Joel. And hopefully some of you remember that last week we concluded with, we concluded lecture 18 with the stunning declaration that is in Revelation 1.18. And which I submit is a mystery. What he says in Revelation 1.18, and it's on the board here. I, I was worried about time today. That's a joke. We'll see, you'll see later. But what Christ says at 118 is astonishing in Revelation. And I think it's a, a mystery of such a magnitude that we're never going to fully understand it. He's going to have to explain it to us. There's one verse. And the best that we can hope for, the best that can be hoped for, is the usual. And that's a basic, shallow, weak grasping of it. And such is the case as we approach the nature of God. So once again, manage your anticipations. That should be routine. Always come to Cliffside with reduced expectance, expectancy, not to be confused with expectorant, which is why I do that unintentionally, the over-enlarged tongue, right? And that's why no one sits in the front row without six mil visqueen. Revelation 1, 17 and 18. I, I can't even describe it. Again, I just got amazing. That's all I've got. And we're only going to gain a small portion of it today. Just barely get it. And if I can, we can barely get it, that's terrific. And I hope uh, that's what we accomplish. When you see something like this, it's easy to just ignore it because it's difficult. And that's a mistake. It's crucial that you make the best attempt you can. Don't look at stuff that is hard in the Bible and pass over it. Don't love the simple. That's Proverbs 122. He says, stop loving the simple. Hebrews 6, you should be teachers by now. Quit taking baby steps or drinking baby food, in which case milk. Get onto the the solid things of the Bible. The church is mired down in the simple now in our generation. All it is is sing the same three verses over and over, make people cry and steal their money. That's what we've got. And it's over and over, and it works. I mean, my goodness, the biggest crowds in the world go to the dumbest churches. That's just the rule. And you know it. And he says to the church, don't be this way, and yet it has become that exactly. It seems like it's opposite bill understand that it is intentional. That was an inserted rant that I didn't write. I said last Sunday that Christ identifies himself as the infinite creator of time. He does that at Revelation 1.17. And that alone is beyond our comprehension. Creating time. Just think about what it takes to create time. What is time? Is it physical? Is it particle-based? He creates it. God's institution, if you wish to think of it that way, of time. The fact that time even exists is a truth so profound that mankind cannot imagine the totality of its implications and has not begun to. The church has, as usual, conceded, neglected the subject to its shame. The evolutionary atheists, they teach the supremacy of time. 
And the church has allowed that to happen without rebuttal. It is a shameful time, age time, huh? age of this of the church. If there is nothing that really explains time, frankly, except this book, the Bible explains time almost everywhere. Time impacts death, just for one small example. The physicist community recognizes this immediately. They see this relationship between physical death and time. The church, clueless. We're the ones with the answers to time and death. You'd never know it. The physics community has long considered our physical death to be an illusion. They notice that immediately as they begin to get to the micro level. When, as the quantum physicist community began to explode in the early 1900s, uh, the impact it had on physical death, the fact that death is an illusion, recognizing the factor that the nature of time presents to physical death. It was one of the first things that came out by the physics or the philosophy in the quantum physics community. Time in theory, as most of you know, has been wedded to space. So it forms the concept of space-time. You will read that everywhere. It's ubiquitous. Time is conceptualized as a subjective ordering device. In other words, it's seen as something that puts order to our existence. It's utilized, time is utilized by human beings, by humanity, to make our physical reality comprehensible. That's what we do with it. But keep asking, why did he do it? We can see what we use it for. Is that why he made it? And how do you make something like time? Immediately the questions start flying up at you, I hope. Why? Why did Christ institute time? What is the purpose of the creation of time? It has purposes. And obviously there are many applications of it. And it's extraordinary. Its impacts are everywhere. You can't escape it. And it's far more than a mere numerical ordering system of material changes, movements or motions, if you will. Talking to Dana about this beforehand. This relationship between movements. Everything moves. Everything moves. The earth is moving through space. You're on it. You're moving. Everything moves. And we measure time by movement. And you really don't. You really don't keep time. You notice that something is moving. You, you see a clock move, and that movement alerts you to the passage of time. But the physical aspect of time isn't there. It is how, what it affects, or how it is marked, if you will. So... Revelation 117 is one place in the Bible where God himself, Christ himself, addresses these mysteries of time where he brings up the why he made time question. He answers it there. For that alone, Revelation 117 and 18 is a masterpiece. It's a lifetime of information. But then you add the behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And when he says that, that statement, my goodness, is just, again, ridiculous. It's astonishing in a way that we can't even begin to grasp. Anyway, 
we're going to reread those verses right now, and we're going to add in verse 19, which, as you could guess, is also shocking. There's three in a row to just, uh, again, I don't even know what to say about them. I'm going to do my best so that you know they're there and you can begin the process of dealing with them. This is John, the Apostle John, who was the beloved of Christ, knows Christ better than any human being that was uh, any apostle, any human being at the time. And when I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not fear or do fear not or do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead and behold... I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Then this verse 19. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things that will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. <sighs> and obviously the context is critical. John has a face-to-face meeting with the God of creation. I want you to think immediately, when's the last time he saw Christ? And when he saw him, did he know it was Christ? But he has a face-to-face meeting with the God of creation, Jesus Christ, John 1.3. John knows he's the God of creation. That's not a a surprise. John knows who Christ really is. And now John describes him to all of us who will read these words. This glorified appearance of Christ. The revealing of Christ for who Jesus Christ truly is. The concealing is now going to be over. There is no way you can't know who he is now. Tear down your silly pictures of this blue-eyed, long-haired Christ with his hands folded with the, with the Italian nose and the pale skin. I mean, it's nonsense. One, he never looked like that. Two, he doesn't look like it now. He looks like this. And knowing that's very important. The concealing is over. And we will, we will see now what is in Daniel 7.14, the white, the fire, the voice, the sound of his voice. Revelation 1, uh, 12 through 16. And, and from this description of Christ now comes Revelation 1.17 through 19, which we just read. And it's necessary to remember the glory, the majesty. Keep that in the forefront, the resplendency of Jesus Christ. That's what you have to think of while you're reading this, because John is in the midst of it. He's seen it in a way that he could never forget it. And I probably best to read it in case some of you are unfamiliar with Daniel 7. So let's do that really fast. I'll start in verse 11. John heard a loud voice of a trumpet. And then now verse 11 says, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. Some Bibles don't have Asia. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. 
Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, notice the order at which John gives this. It's kind of surprising. If I heard a voice that sounded like a trumpet, tremendously loud, and I turn around, I'm going to, what am I going to see first? He gives us the seven lampstands. Or, I'm sorry, the seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice was the sound of many waters. That's the waterfall, if you will, of Niagara Falls. Think of that. That's the kind of noise that you're hearing here. He had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth when a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And I fell at his feet as dead. How bright is the sun? We're, we got sun now. Yay, Alaska. We got lots of sun. We have 15 hours of daylight almost. What do you have down there in Texas? Not 15 hours, I'm sure. We're on our way to 20 hours of daylight. And then what comes? Winter. That's right. So we got two more months of summer. Note the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. We find that at Isaiah 41.4 and 44.6. 44.6 says, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Isaiah 48:12 Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. These are the words that only the creator God can speak and Christ is making it clear beyond dispute that he is the creator God when he calls himself the first and the last. Everyone knows that that understands what that means. Now we can make our mandatory list. I make the list I made the list already. List makers are going to list. The highest level of list makers is the list maker that makes lists of their lists, which I have done. I have the motto that he who lists last lists best. And it's hard for me to say lists. I have to work on that for a half hour or better. This is what we what I call a pre-listing list. I listed the list before the list needed to be listed. Because I was worried about time, which happens to be the subject today. I was scared it was going to take me too long to list. And list... Listing part is important because what happens when I do the listing part? I turn around. What do you get to do? Run. And I turn back around. The whole back row is gone. It's fantastic. I turn around again. Second to the back row is gone. You ever wonder how many cars are stolen here? That's when it happens. We have a rule here that you have to have a silver car to park in the parking lot. Eighty-five percent. But let's go over the list. We can start now because Brady is here. I see you brought your trumpet. Yay. I sh- you should have let me know because I would have brought the mouthpieces. Right. One thing at a time. Okay. <coughs> 
here's how it begins. Look at your text. Hopefully you have the same translation that I have. I have the New King James. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And then that wonderful verse. But he laid his right hand on me. But. So he fell as dead. But. So that tells you that Christ looks at him and does something. A response, if you will. God doesn't respond. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Fear not, do not be afraid. I am the first and last. I am he who lives and was dead. Oh, my goodness. And was dead. And behold. So whatever comes next, behold, behold. Whatever comes next is going to be incredible. I am alive forevermore. Amen. That's incredible. He's given you information that is astonishing, is unbelievable, that no one else could ever say. And you're supposed to go, wow. Why is it that way? I have the keys of Hades and of death. Obvious questions flying at you, I hope. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will be. I added be. After this will take place after this. And then we have the mystery of the seven stars, the seven lampstands, angels and churches. I'll just do that really fast. The churches are the lampstands, right? What are the stars? He says, the seven seven stars and the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So the angels are the seven stars and the churches are the seven lampstands. We know the churches are the seven ages of the churches. That's 2,000 years of churches. So I got how many years of angels? I got 2,000 years of angels? Because if lampstands are churches and churches are lampstands and churches are 2,000 years of churches, well, then seven angels, i got to be something. You've got to tell me who those seven angels are. It's called the mystery of the seven stars and seven lampstands, angels and churches. Who are these angels representing? And we ended last Sunday with a few of the obvious questions. What does as dead mean? I fell at his feet as dead. I want you to imagine John turns around, sees Christ as he looks in Daniel 7, sees him, and he falls as if he were dead. How does a dead person fall? So think about it. And then what is this behold? What is the behold of I am alive forevermore? Amen. What's the behold of that? What are these keys? Why does Christ need keys? What do the keys look like? How big are the keys? How much do they weigh? What do they unlock? Start thinking about the keys. Why does he have keys? Does he need keys? How good of a lock pick is Christ? What lock can stop him? Why doesn't he have a handprint lock, push button lock. He has keys. Why? Why are there keys? What is Hades? 
I got Hades. And I got death. Obvious question. What's the difference between Hades and death? What is Hades? What is death? As it's in this context. Who is in Hades? Where is Hades? Up here he says, I am alive. When God says, I am alive, define alive. Obviously, the first and the last is a reference to the creation of time. I hope that is obvious to you. He says, I am the first. I'll put it here. And I am the last. So that's the first. And this is the last. And what's in that set? Everything is absolutely right, but certainly time is in there. He is saying right here, the first and the last is a reference to the creation, the institution of, of time. And he is before time and he is after time. And that means time is contained by him. That's what he's saying. I'm the first and I'm the last. And inside of me is time. Time is not. He is not inside of time. I almost said that wrong. He is not inside of time. Time is inside of him. That's what he's saying by first and last. He is the one who holds time. He is the absolute observer of all of time. Therefore, he answers the question, which is larger, infinity or time? Time is inside him and he is infinite. Who says this kind of stuff? You find me another person in history that says that time is inside of me. No one has ever said it. Christ says it. I get letters constantly telling me, you call Christ God all the time, you lying bleep bleep. Um, I get it all the time. Christ is not God. There's a couple of people that uh, I get called lots of cool names. Some not so cool, but I'm, listen, it, it actually amuses me. And I don't, re, I don't regret at all. But they'll say constantly that nowhere in the New Testament did Jesus Christ ever say he was God. That's really common. He, he never stopped saying he is God. And here he says that time is inside of him. Yes, sir. Um, for those of you um, on the Internet, Supper Dave, if he exists, and if that is his wife laughing at that, we don't know. Yet to be determined, yet to be resolved, but he said that he took a challenge of mine. I tell people constantly or consistently that if you leave Cliffside, they ask me, where shall I go to church because I'm leaving out of state? Go up and ask the pastor, who is Jesus Christ? And if he doesn't answer, absolute full God, at all times never not God, then move to the next church. If he's confused about the deity of Christ, he's confused. And now we'll deal with the humanity of Christ. If he's confused about the humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ, then you're in a church where you're wasting your time because the Bible is locked to those kinds of people who think. And Dave, if he exists, 
um, said that uh, he, he was uh, in his little survey, his own personal survey, he found that Anchorage is what, 50 percent? Is that what you think? Less than 50 percent? I don't doubt that. I'm surprised it's that high. He is the one. Jesus Christ holds time. This absolute observation of time is important for you to know because it's going to bring into the physics community here in a minute. Who has ever said this? No one. No one has ever thought to say it for Jesus Christ. I'm almost afraid to alert people that he is the only one that has ever said it because now someone else will try to say it. But no one has ever said that they have time inside of them, that they are the first and the last. And you need to consider for a moment what that means. He's declaring time to be subject to him, his authority. Why does he say it and what is proved by him saying it and what is it? What is proved by it being true? And that's pretty much uh, recaps uh, where we left off last week. And now we can begin the lecture. Smiley face, I put right here. Let's take on this, behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Obviously, we, we, the kids are outside, aren't they? Is it bothering anyone? Are, yeah, well, I just wondered if you want to close the window, you can, if you'd like to. How many parents are glad that the kids are outside? Every one. Let the record show there is none that isn't glad. <laughs> I think today is let's throw rocks day at each other. I think I think that's what I saw on the itinerary for the. Uh, <laughs> if you ever want to learn mercy and grace, go down and work with seventeen, eighteen kids that age for an hour, and then and then hug the uh, the staff, because that is not easy to do. But we pay them really well. Okay, we don't. No, no, that's not happening. Uh, again, this behold, I am alive. God is saying, I am alive. Wow. God is saying he's alive. We've got to define what that means. It, it's not our alive. It's God's alive. God's alive is not the same as your or my alive. It's different. He has a different alive than we've got. We have no alive without God's li- alive. God's alive, not the same. God has his own alive. He is he who lives. He says, I, I am the one who lives. I am he who lives. We live because he is who is the one who lives. Our existence is dependent on his existence. He wills that we exist. We cannot will ourselves into existence. It's a big difference between his alive and our alive. Just as our resurrection is dependent on his resurrection, our existence is depending on his existence. Our alive is depending on his alive. You know all of that already. That's just for the internet audience. The one guy who will watch his sermon. It's obvious, I hope it's obvious, also obvious, is that God's definition of alive is connected to, I am he who lives and was dead. So, I got, I'm going to define alive by coming down here and figuring this out and figuring this out. Because they're right behind each other. They're subsequent. Do I need to mention that was is distinct from is? 
was is not the same as is. That's a big deal. In other words, God said, I was dead. I was. God is using the word was. That's a big deal. I was dead. What does was mean when God says was? Because it is a what kind of reference? It is a time reference. Why would the one of whom time is inside of him, that he is the first and the last, why would he use a time reference with regard to his death? He does. What does it mean? It's one of the great mysteries, I think, of, of the book of Revelation. God, the creator of time, God who is outside of time, the absolute observer of time. Jesus Christ has simultaneity. And he sees time all the time, simultaneously. And that's the ultimate meaning, as you know, of I am. That's why he calls himself the I am, because of this simultaneity that he possesses. He's the first and the last. I am the first. I am the last. He's telling you, I see time like this. I am the person who is the outside of time and therefore the creator of time. Physicist uh, Herman Minkowski saw time and space as the same, which is why he, he created the word space-time. He saw, he saw this sameness there. What does he mean? Why is time and space the same? Why is there no difference in his mind? Einstein believed time was an illusion. Now you understand why they believe death is an illusion, right? Maybe you don't understand, but now you understand they think death is an illusion and time is an illusion. Therefore, both are an illusion. Therefore, there's some connection between time and death. Hopefully that makes sense. Einstein, again, believed there was time is an illusion, that there is no difference between past, present, and future. Is he right? Well, is he right for Christ? For the one who contains time, who is the I am, he's the only I am. There is no I am except this I am. There is, no, there is no I am except Christ, Isaiah 44, 6. For the one who is the I am, the absolute observer of all things, the omniscient one, there is no time. Time does not move for him. And again, time and movement have a relationship. Well, I have to deal with, it with that. I judge time by movement. I'm here. I have moved there. How much time expired? And you can tell that I moved. And therefore, I, it took time to move. You're going to get into the shortest distance a photon can move. It's called a Planck movement. Time does not move for Christ. Jesus Christ, again, assigns simultaneity to himself. Who does that? Who else in history has said that time is simultaneous to him? Find it. No one else has said this. So, who can say it? Why did he say it? What's he trying to tell us? 
And now the person who has this characteristic, this attribute, is using the word was. I was dead or and was dead. I was dead and behold I am alive and he who lives and was dead. On the surface, seemingly, this should make no sense to you. How can he who lives be dead? He, he lives. He's the living one. He's the one who lives. Living and death, as applied to God, are opposites. What does dead mean when it's said of Christ? And this is what I call the totality of dead when Christ uses the word. When you use the word, your dead is a little tiny dead. When he uses dead, dead is immense to him. It has tremendous implications. It has more meaning than you can comprehend. My dead is an insignificant dead. His dead is beyond uh, capability of my mind to, find, to even begin to study it, to understand it. If we properly divine, I am alive forevermore, amen. If we can do that, then we should be able to reason out what he meant by being dead. What, dead, what a dead Christ what it takes for a dead Christ to be dead. And hopefully, again, that makes some kind of sense. Probably not. Remember Romans 6, 9. Death no longer has dominion over him. No longer is a time reference. How does death have dominion over him? How can death have dominion over omnipotence? Ever asked these questions? Of course not. You're not weird. Wait a minute, you're here. (laughs) Probably the greatest contribution to Cliffside is Bill the the Fast. Were you weird before you came to Cliffside or did we make you weird? That is fantastic because we know what the truth is. The truth is, is we did not make you anyone weird. You made yourself weird and it's working out for us. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Peter 3.18, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. There is your first clue of what he means. I should note right here, Jesus Christ resurrected himself. He said that, John 2, 19 through 22. I say all the time, find the places where God the Father resurrected him, God the Spirit resurrected him, and he resurrected himself. He said he resurrected himself, John 2, 19, 22. The Holy Spirit resurrected Jesus Christ here in 1 Peter 3.18. Being put to dead in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. The Father raised him up, Acts 2.24. And I should note Acts 2.32. Acts 2.32 is so important because it says, This Jesus God raised up. Now, most of your Bibles are going to have a comma there. There is no comma there. That was added by an idiot. And that's being polite. Jesus God is one word. This Jesus God has raised up. Anyway, 
ranted again. Once again, it appears I've become lost, and it's only an appearance, and I'm in complete control. I know exactly where I am at all times. Or not. Okay, where am I? <laughs> he who lives, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, here it comes, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And that's why we're reading 1 Peter 3.18. Being put to death in the flesh. Obviously, what does being put to death in the flesh address about Christ? It addresses his humanity, his perfect humanity. Here's an here's a offshoot really fast. Who put Jesus God to death? You're going to hear people say all the time, I'm the one that killed Christ. It's very popular in the church. Every time I see it, I just go, oh, my goodness. Um, But how arrogant of you. Let's start there. Yes, ma'am. Oh, excellent choice. Uh, Excellent comment. Um, uh, Let the record show that Felicia brought up... um, that it's amazing that it only took Christ three days to take care of this problem that he's taking care of by dying. What's amazing is that, uh, and that's really thoughtful, uh, he made it go three days. He had a plan. He wanted three days and three nights. Could he have done it instantaneously? Oh, absolutely. He's omnipotent. So why the sign of Jonah? But I understand what you're saying is how immense is the problem of his death fixing? What is the magnitude of it? What does he have to do? Back to this. Who put Jesus God to death? Before you answer yourself or the Romans or the Jews, remember John 10:17. I lay down my life that I may take it again. And no one takes it from me. No one means no one. Uh, But I lay it down myself. Who put Christ to death? He put himself to death. No one can put Jesus God to death. It cannot be made more clear. He said it plainly. Discard all thoughts otherwise. And please don't write me. Okay, write me. It's kind of fun. But don't tell me that that I've made a mistake because I don't understand Peter's sermon of Acts 2. 222 through 23. Obviously, I just put it on the board. So I'm, I'm aware of it. Acts 2.23 is not in conflict with John 10.17. It cannot be. It is not disharmonious. And that remains for you or me to determine why it's not disharmonious. Well, I should read it, huh? You're looking at me like I don't know what you're talking about, which is, you know, pretty typical here. Why should it be any different today? Here's the sermon of Peter. He says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man capitalized, attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourself also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless deeds, or I'm sorry, by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. So, Peter is accusing Israel of killing God. They say, he is not. 
doing that. He knows that Christ raised himself. He knows the Godhead functions. He understands the triunity of God perfectly. He has been touched by Christ. He's a genius at this point in his life. Fisherman slash genius. God likes fishermen. Also carpenters. Just thought I'd throw that in there. Trumpet players. Is there a difference between a carpenter and a framer? Yes, there is. I've met real carpenters, and they are not anything like me at all. I only wish that I could do what they do. And you know the difference between them and me? That's right, more tools. Make sure you mention that to Lori. But just take, take what Peter is saying in his sermon there. Consider that the Jews to whom he is speaking, the men of Israel, they did not crucify Christ, did they? The Romans did that. And the case can be made, certainly, that Jewish, the Jewish religious order, the Pharisees and the priests, manipulated the Romans. That's absolutely true. They did. They didn't want to kill him. They wanted the Romans to kill him. So you can make, uh, say the Romans were simply a proxy. But, he, but Peter would know that the Jews did not perform the execution process. That was the Romans. Even though they had no control over it while they're doing it. Absolutely no control. I've made that point thousands of times over my so-called career. Christ had authority over his crucifixions and the Romans knew it immediately. They never had any doubt. Though no crucifixion was ever like this one. Anyway, I am he who lives and was dead. What's he saying? That is First uh, Timothy 3.16. Let me put it on the board. I am he who lives and was dead. You can go right to First Timothy 3.16. Without... Without dispute, I think the most important 3.16 in all of the New Testament. I know you have another one. But it says in Timothy 3.16, as you know, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Great. This is great. This mystery is ridiculous. Thank you for raising both hands today. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh and justified in the spirit. That's what it says. There's more to it than that. But read it on your own time because I've just been told I'm out of time. The hypostatic union is what this is. The absolute infinite deity joins, adds perfect humanity. So, compare again, 1 Peter 3.18, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, or by the Spirit. That is the hypostatic union. So, he's saying, I am he who lives and was dead. So, what is he saying? What is he saying there? I am he who lives and was dead. The format's the same. The infinite living God added to himself humanity, humanness. Yes, it's a word. Look it up. However, never apply a fallen sinful attribute to the humanity of Christ. He is perfect humanity without blemish. He has to be no sin. You've never met a no sin human. Look at the person next to you. That's a sinful human. Find a mirror. Sinful human. You've never seen a perfect human. It's not the same as you. How many more sins do you have than Christ? Have a self-assessment that works. 
The point is, yea, a point. The man of Revelation 1, 12 through 16, the white, the eyes like flame of fire, the loud voice of Niagara Falls is the only thing I've got. Victoria Falls, maybe the huge sound of that. Shining like the sun. Again, try looking at the sun. This man is Jesus Christ, Jesus God, the living God who was dead, the God man. And when John had last seen him, John 20, 19 through 21, 23, Christ did not show those characteristics to him as completely as he did in Revelation 1. There were glimpses. They saw the transfiguration. They knew the loud voice of Christ at the cross. They saw what happened at Gethsemane. So John had all that in his head. Didn't take him long to figure out that what he was seeing was Christ himself. He heard his voice. And nothing like Revelation 1, 12 through 16, which is Daniel 7, 9 through 10. The Ancient of Days, the Judge of All Things, John 5, 22. When John saw Christ with John, with Christ full glory revealed, John fell as dead. That's important. But again, let me pound this in. I am he who lives, I am God, and was dead human. That's the mystery of godliness. That's what he's saying to John there. That's what that means. Now, when John, Jesus, in his, with his full glory revealed, John fell as dead. Where is that? As dead. What's that mean? Again, which direction did he fall? Face first or backwards? When he fell as dead, how much movement did he have? Was it a process? There's a, how long was the dying scene here? Let me ask you better. Is he dead? What does as dead mean here? Who's in front of him? Who's standing there? Life itself. I fell as dead. What does it entail? Is the falling of the Romans, the detachment of troops, the priests, the Pharisees of John 18.6 in the garden of God, is that what John experienced in Revelation 1.17? Because they fell as dead there, too. Did John fall face first? How does a dead man fall? How long was John in that state? Ultimately, Christ raises John up and tells him, fear not. Fear. What was John afraid of? You decide. Turn in your papers, test on Friday. What was he afraid of? He fell as dead. And God says, raises John up, puts his right hand on him and raises him up. Why not his left hand? Why are the sheep on the right and the goats on the left? I made the point last week, I think I did, that left-handed people are evil. Didn't I say that? If I forgot, I should have let me repeat it. They, they die quicker. Did you, you know that, right? Because... There's not. He can't get a left-handed gun. A left-handed person shoots a right-handed gun. He's probably going to shoot himself, right? He's on the wrong side of the road. Everything's a mess. Driving his car. It's a miracle any of them live. (laughs) Just to give you a little bit of comfort, my dad 
He was almost 91 when he died, and all he did his whole life was talk about how being left-handed was an advantage. So my point being is that you can live a long time, but you're going to be bitter. Can't even find a fishing pole. I mean, come on. That's the old joke. You, know, you realize that's a joke. You, you, never mind. Buy somebody. Say, you, you, if you get a fishing pole from somebody, say, oh, it's a left-handed fishing pole. You got the wrong one. You have to take it back. Give me a right-handed fishing pole. Never mind again. I'm just running out of gas here, aren't I? Christ raises John up, tells him, fear not. What was John afraid of? John is afraid of something. John the Apostle is at the end of his life. They've tried to boil him alive by now, the Romans did. Every Roman that was anywhere near John the Apostle, what happened to him? They're all saved. He saved them all. Best place in the world to be at that time was the guard of John the Apostle. But they tried to kill him. Wouldn't work. This is an incredible mystery. You know this is an incredible mystery, right? I hope you do. Look at what John says at the back. John uh, 21, 23. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. You ever get on the internet, did John the apostle die? Try that for fun. Here's what it says. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but... If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? John wrote that about himself. He's on the island with the Roman soldiers. They're trying to boil him around. Read the history on it. Couldn't kill him. I keep wanting him to call me. For some reason, I'm not important. That's not a shock. But it's a fascinating question. Why did God say that about John the Apostle? Something for us to mess around with. And no, I won't go crazy. But you'll find crazy on the Internet. (laughs) John sees this. He sees God. He sees him. He can't even look at him. This shines like the sun. How close is he to him? And then he hears Christ say, Fear not. And he feels Christ put his hand on him. Is it possible that John is dead anymore? If he was. No. He raises John up. And John now knows that this is Christ. He hears the voice. Jesus identifies himself to John. I am the first and the last. John now knows that that's Christ. I am he who lives and was dead. Christ. He knows this is God. The God-man. The Jesus God. This is... The hypostatic union. God manifest in the flesh. And God is known for saying to his own, doesn't he? He says it to you. Fear not. Be not afraid. What's he telling you not to be afraid of? There's a couple of things you can be afraid of. Are you afraid of death? Seems to be inherent in us. Are you afraid of judgment? Are you afraid of God? He's telling you, fear not. What's the difference between those who fear and those who should not fear? Christ says this repeatedly. John would know it and he would know his voice. And lastly for today, I hope, let me see. Pretty close. 
Lastly for today, behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And a bunch of you have gone all over this already and you figured it out. I submit that this is connected to he who lives and was dead, which is Christ emphasizing his godhood and his humanity, his flesh, the greatest of all mysteries. I am alive forevermore. Amen. It seems obvious that he's alive forevermore. Amen. Why does he say it? It can't be obvious, can it? He is life itself. So what is he actually saying? Why is it a behold? Well, what does he mean by alive? What does, what is the whole, the whole of what was dead? Why was it required that he slay himself? Cause he did. Notice how I said it. Slay himself. He is both the high priest and the Passover lamb simultaneously, isn't he? He is slaying himself at three o'clock p.m. on Passover. While he is both the high priest and the lamb, because he's simultaneously doing it, he has simultaneity, he contains time. He's the two goats of Yom Kippur and the high priest, again, simultaneously, Leviticus 16. One goat sacrificed as the sin of the people placed on it. The other goat lives, the goat for Azazel, lives and was dead. Do you see that? Lives and was dead. Two goats. One lives, one was dead. Now, back to alive forevermore as Christ would define it. Information cannot be destroyed. It's John Bell's theorem. It has defeated the Einstein-Poldowski-Rosen position on determinancy. Information cannot be destroyed. It is a fact of quantum physics. It's, in my view, the foundation upon which quantum physics is formed. But God says definitively that he will remember our sins no more. Hebrews 8.12, Jeremiah 31.34, Hebrews 10.17. For those of you following on the internet. How can the rememberer, omniscience, how can the one who remembers, remember the thief, remember? (laughs) The thief said to the rememberer, remember me. Because he knew he was the rememberer. How can the rememberer not remember? How can the rememberer not remember your sins forevermore? What does this have to do with the behold I am alive forevermore? Felicia sent you in the right direction. The totality of what it takes to be dead for God. Why he's dead. Why he slays himself. That's the answer to alive forevermore. You see, I am alive forevermore. I was dead. I did this. And now I'm done with it. And I don't have to ever do it again. What are the consequences to him for doing what he did? Why does he say he's alive? How does he forget your sins? What about the sins of the ones in the lake of fire? Does he forget theirs? Why? What is the definition of alive forevermore after he was dead? What has changed? Can he change? He's immutable. He cannot change. Why does he put it in this format? Papers due at the end of next week, test on Friday. We'll finish this up.